let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 2. There's a common saying that Christians like to use. It's become kind of cliche today. It's this, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Have you heard that before? You know, I've, I've said that before, and I've often wondered, though, is that really true? Like, is Christianity religion? Is it a relationship? Well, it turns out that it all depends on what you mean by the word religion. Typically, there are two ways we use that word, one positive way and one negative way. The, the positive way we use the word religion is the textbook definition. It's this. Religion is the belief in and worship of God. It's a specific set of beliefs and practices. So according to that definition, Christianity is a religion. The Bible actually speaks of religion positively in a few places, like James 1.27, where it said that true religion is to care for orphans and widows. So in some ways, yeah, Christianity is a religion. But there's another popular way we use the word religion. It's the negative way. It's to define religion as a set of man-made rules where you need to strive to be holy so you can earn God's love and approval. And when we define religion this way, we often think of religion as being arrogant and judgmental and hypocritical. You guys experience that kind of religion? I know I have growing up in the church. And that second definition, that's usually what people mean when they say Christianity is not a religion. We know that while Christianity has rules and emphasizes obedience, we obey out of love for God. We follow the rules from our salvation, not for our salvation. That, that's the relationship part that's so important. You remember when Jesus called his disciples to, to follow him, he did call them to a particular way of life and to a particular set of beliefs. But most importantly, he called them to know him personally. And Jesus spent a lot of his ministry showing how following him was different from the common religion of the day, which was Judaism. Jesus grew up a Jew. He followed the Jewish law to a T. Yet he spoke most harshly and argued most fiercely with the Jewish religious leaders of his day. These were men who were so religious that they not only followed the rules of the Old Testament or claimed to, they invented other rules on top of the original rules so they didn't have to worry about breaking the real rules. And they were highly judgmental. They spent a lot of time policing everyone else and viewing themselves as holier than thou. And no one did this better than a man named Paul, who at this point was more commonly referred to as Saul. Saul was trained under some of the smartest and greatest Jewish rabbis in all of Israel. So when it came to religion, Paul was the most devoted man you'd ever seen. He memorized all the rules. He, he kept them strictly. He even punished those who did it. So when Paul heard about this new sort of religious movement where rules like keeping the Sabbath and only eating certain foods, those things weren't being followed, he was mad. In fact, Saul set out to kill and imprison those people. Do you remember what happened? Along the way, Paul got a visit from the leader of this new movement, a man who they had just crucified named Jesus. And it turns out he was alive. And Paul's life was changed forever. And he, he became a missionary and he wrote many of the books of the New Testament, including the book of Romans. 
If you've been here with us, that's the book we've been walking through verse by verse. And we learned from the beginning that Paul was writing to a Roman church which was filled with Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. So there was some cultural conflict going on. And Paul speaks into that and he explains how the gospel is really for all people. Today's passage, Paul is going to be speaking directly to the Jews. And he's going to talk to them about their religion. So it's important that you know from this point forward, when you hear me say the word religion, I'm using the negative definition, the idea of being self-righteous and legalistic. And we're going to see that this kind of false religion has a big problem. Here it is. The problem with religion is that it cannot save you. So let me show you. Let's walk through this passage verse by verse. And I want to show you two reasons why religion can't save you. Look first at chapter two, Romans 2, verses 17 through 20. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you were sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment, of knowledge and truth. Let's pause right there. How do we know Paul is talking to the Jewish people here? Well, he says so. He starts out saying, you call yourself a Jew. And he begins to describe the Jewish people of his day. Jewish people had become highly religious in a bad way. They were puffed up. In fact, the things that Paul says about them here, they were saying about themselves. Because the Jewish people were the people of God, they were the nation of Israel, they were direct descendants of Abraham, they said things like, we're a guide to the blind, a light to the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children. In other words, they knew things that no one else did, and they alone were able to share it with the world. And here's the deal. This was sort of true. The Jewish people did have the law of God. Remember, God gave them the Ten Commandments through Moses. They did know God's will. They did know his work. Every Jewish person growing up in Israel would have memorized a lot of the Old Testament. They had, in fact, been called to be a light to the darkness of the world. So these great things were true of them. But here was the problem. They became prideful with all their rules. They began to believe that because they knew the rules, God loved them more than everyone else. They thought he was going to give them a free pass because of their religion and status. They wouldn't be judged by God. They had the law. And they became so prideful of their rules that they didn't even keep those rules themselves. Let's keep going. Verses 21 to 24. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Man, Paul just pulled the rug right out from under these Jewish folks. Remember, they're tracking along. They're feeling pretty good about themselves. They're saying, Paul, you tell them. You tell them real good. We're not like those Gentiles you talked about in chapter 1, those sinners and idolaters. We know the rules. We teach other people the rules. We're the good guys, the religious guys. But Paul says, not so fast. You know the rules, and you teach others, but you don't even keep them yourselves. 
you hypocrites. And he gives three examples of how they break their own rules. These are rhetorical questions, the kind your mama or your dad would say to you, not looking for an answer, but trying to make a point. This is the way Paul would have asked these questions. Hey, while, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? Uh-huh. And while you say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Yeah. Uh-huh. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples too? He's saying you're thieves, adulterers, idolaters. You're, you're no better than everyone else. In fact, in some ways, you're worse because you brag about your rules and then you turn right around and break them. And as a result, God is being blasphemed because of you. People are talking bad about God because you're being a terrible representative of him. Man, this is harsh talk. Remember, Paul was a Jew. These were his people. This was personal for him, and yet he's bringing this pointed, painful truth right to them. And yet here's what's happened today. We, the Gentiles, remember, we're Gentiles, have fallen into the same trap, the same religious pride of the first century Jews. The script has been flipped right around. And today, church-going Christians are the ones who get puffed up with their religious pride. I think if we're all honest this morning, we all tend to act like little Pharisees from time to time. And friends, I'm not just preaching at you, I'm preaching at me too. Because man, I, I struggle with this kind of false religion. I told you last week growing up, I loved rules. I kept all the rules. I was very moral. I was very religious. I started going to church nine months before I was born. I didn't miss a Sunday, man. I was involved. I was like the Baptist version of an altar boy. Okay, at the Christmas play, I had the lead role. In the children's choir, I sang the solo. In the Awana State Tournament, I competed in scripture memory and won awards. Thank you. I, <laughs> I needed that validation. No, uh, I was a sword drill champion. I wore a clip-on tie, and I gave from my own piggy bank to the offering. And I thought I was better and holier than everyone else. Those kids in my school who did bad stuff, they weren't good and righteous like me. In high school, those people who drank on the weekends and slept around, oh, I was so much better than them. And look, I knew the gospel. I knew it forward and backward. And I believed it. I knew I was a sinner. I just didn't think I was as near much of one as everyone else. <laughs> it took me some time to realize that I was a Pharisee. I struggled with thinking that I could earn God's approval and love by being religious enough. And it wasn't until late in high school that God opened my eyes to the hypocrisy and lie that I lived. I sang the songs on Sunday morning and then I talked terribly on Monday at soccer practice. I condemned the sexually active people in my school and then I struggled with lust behind closed doors. And I had all kinds of hidden sins and struggles in my own heart. So thank God that he had mercy and grace on me. And he began to dismantle my religious pride and remind me of the gospel. The same gospel I believed at seven years old. And, and here's what I learned. It's our first point with the problem. On the problem with religion, number one, religious pride can't save you. Look, I'm so glad that I grew up in church and learned scripture and went to Awana and went to Sunday school and learned about God's word. And I can still remember so many of my teachers who I, who I loved. And man, that was great. Please don't hear me saying those things are bad. 
By all means, bring your kids to church. It's just like the law wasn't a bad thing for Jewish people. Rather, it's, it's the heart attitude that's the problem. It's the tendency that we have as sinners to base our salvation and our standing with God on our own religion. That's the problem. Instead of looking to God for everything we have, we turn inward and give credit to ourselves for being spiritual. And that's the point Paul is making. All of us are sinners under the judgment of a holy God. Even if you grew up in a religious family and never missed a Sunday and know all the songs and all the verses and all the answers to the questions, those things cannot save you. You cannot save you. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. And the very way that Paul makes this point to these religious people is by using their own rules against them. He uses three of the Ten Commandments. And I think that could still be a helpful way to show people that we've all sinned and broken God's law. Because a lot of people think that they've kept most of God's commands. Well, let's find out if that's true this morning, okay? We're going to take a little test together. And I want you to think about yourself. Let's think of a, just a few of the Ten Commandments. How about the first one? You shall have no other gods before me. Have you kept that one? <laughs> have you ever put something else before God? And worship that thing instead of him? That's called idolatry. How about the fifth commandment? You shall honor your father and mother. Need I say more? <laughs> How about the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. Whew, I'm good there. Haven't killed anybody. But remember what Jesus said. He said, if you hate someone, you've broken this law in your heart. How about the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. Remember, Jesus also said, if you lust after someone, you've broken that one too in your heart. Eight, nine, ten, those are easy to prove. Stealing, lying, coveting. I mean, goodness gracious, I'm, I'm toast. I've broken all these rules, and you have too. And that's Paul's point. We have no reason to be prideful and ourselves. We're just as messed up and sinful as the next person. And in fact, we may be even worse because whereas sinful people know they need help we think we can save ourselves. That has to be the greatest and most offensive sin one can commit, to reject God and put yourself in his place as your own savior. This is exactly what Jesus charged the Pharisees with doing in his day. I want you to listen to these verses straight from the mouth of Jesus. Imagine Jesus saying this in Matthew 23, verses 2 through 4. He said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. He continues, verses 13 through 15. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Verses 25 through 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
For you were like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. And lastly, in verse 33, he says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Can you believe Jesus said those things? Do you think he was whispering when he said those words? Do <laughs> you think he was smiling like we often picture it? He was mad. This is what Jesus thinks about false religion and religious pride and self-righteousness. It deserves his judgment. And Paul knew this full well as someone who had lived his life hoping and trusting in religious pride. He discovered it cannot save you. Let's keep going. This next section, look at Romans 2, verse 25 through 27. For circumcision, indeed, is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will, conde will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. Okay, got to ask this question. What is up with all the circumcision stuff? This may seem a little weird, especially if you didn't grow up in the Christian faith. But this is important because we're going to see a lot more of this in Romans. It, it's something that Paul talks about a lot in the New Testament. In order to understand this, we need to go back to the Old Testament. Remember, Paul was a Jew. And in this passage, he's talking to Jews, so they would have been familiar with all this. They would have remembered that in the very beginning, God made a covenant in Genesis with Abraham, that they would be his people, that he would be their God. And God used circumcision to mark his people, to set them apart from everyone else. It was like a branding it was an external sign meant to signify an internal reality. So for Jews, to be circumcised became really important. It was one of those rituals they relied on to show that, hey, I'm right with God. They thought, we're Israel. We know the law. We're circumcised. We're good. And it became a get-out-of-hell free card, in a sense. The circumcision was never meant to work that way. Rather, it was meant to point to the circumcision of the heart. It was an outward sign that pointed to the inward reality that you had faith in God and you trusted in His promise to save you. So in Romans chapter 2, Paul gets really personal. I mean, he's taking a direct shot at something that was a big deal to the Jewish people. He says, hey, circumcision is not going to save you. It's only a value if you keep the whole law and are perfect. And since we've already established that's not true then circumcision is not going to get you out of judgment. In fact, your circumcision is no different than the Gentile people who aren't circumcised. Again, this was personal. Remember that religious pride stuff? Circumcision was a, a big part of that. The, the Jews saw themselves as being superior, as having a leg up on everyone because they were circumcised and other people weren't. And Paul says, no, no. Circumcised or uncircumcised, you're all standing on level ground. And then he finishes this passage like this, verses 28 to 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. 
This is so important. We're going to see more of this as we keep going. But Paul is trying to explain something that many of the Jews misunderstood from the Old Testament. For them, being a part of the people of God was all about the external. Like if I know the right stuff and do the right things, then I'll be right with God. And that's what they trusted in. I'm a child of Abraham. I've been circumcised. I know the law. Man, me, God, we're good. Paul says, no. It's never just been about the external, the outside. You missed the point of the Old Testament. A true Jew, a true child of God is someone who is changed on the inside, who's been circumcised in their heart. You can clean yourself up all you want on the outside, but if you have not been saved and changed by God on the inside, it doesn't matter. And here Paul gives us the second problem with religion. Number two, religious practice can't save you. Just like the first point, this is something we need to hear as Christians today. But we're not Jews. We no longer view circumcision as a religious thing. But we too tend to think that doing the right religious stuff can save us. This is especially true for those of us who grew up in church like me. If you went to church as a kid, do you remember uh, the star chart? Like, Did you have one of those on the walls of your Sunday school room where you got a little star when you did something right? Like if you showed up to church by your name, you'd get a star. If you brought your Bible to church, you'd get a star by your name. If you memorized your verse, you'd get a star by your name. And, and just for the record, I had more stars than you. But a lot of us, we tend to view the Christian life that way. Like there's this giant star chart in our heaven with our name on it. And I go to church and God puts a star by my name. And I give to the offering and God adds another star. And I read my Bible today and God adds another star. And if you ask us, oh, of course, we're saved by grace through faith. Of course, those stars don't save me or make me a Christian. But boy, it sure makes me feel better to have those stars up there. When I doubt my salvation, those stars make me feel like a Christian. When I mess up and I sin again, those stars help me out with God. And we tend to fall back on our star chart and measure God's love and God's acceptance of us on our religious practice. Friends, I need to tell you something very important. Your star chart won't save you. I don't care how many stars you have. Those stars will not make you right with God. They will not earn you a spot in heaven or make God love you more or less. Just like circumcision, being a child of God is not based on external actions or religious practice. But getting baptized won't save you. Walking an aisle and talking to the pastor won't save you. Being a member of a church won't save you. Repeating the sinner's prayer after the pastor won't save you. Giving to the offering won't save you. Showing up to church every Sunday won't save you. Praying in Sunday school, answering the questions won't save you. Telling other people about Jesus won't save you. Raising your kids and grandkids in church won't save you. For no one is a Christian who is merely one outwardly. And listen to me, this is not condemnation. I'm not saying this today to tear you down. I'm saying this to free you. This is freedom. And brothers and sisters, this is good news. Because this means my salvation is not up to me. <laughs> And what an awful burden that would be if I had to live every day with an internal star chart. 
I would be miserable trying to make up for every sin and earn every star I possibly could. I would have no assurance of my salvation. I'd have no comfort, no peace. I'd be a nervous wreck. And many believers live that way today. But praise God, it's not up to me. My salvation is not based on how many stars I get or how many rules I keep. God's love does not rise and fall depending on whether I had my quiet time today or not. What God thinks of me does not change every time I sin again. Because my salvation, my standing is based on one thing and one thing only. It's based on the free gift of God's grace in Jesus. When Jesus, yeah, thank you. When Jesus came to save you, he came to save the rebellious and the religious. Growing up, I, I remember hearing the story about the prodigal son. Do y'all remember that one? One of the most famous stories Jesus ever told. A son that took his father's money, he ran away, he, he blew it all on sin, and he became poor and starving. So he decided, hey, I'll go back home. I'll beg my dad, and he'll let me be a servant. And the story says that while he was a long way off, what happened? The father saw him, ran to him, embraced him, and accepted him. And he threw a huge party that his son had left his rebellion and sin, and he came home. I remember hearing that story and thinking, oh, that's, that's nice. That's great. But that's not me. I didn't go out and live the wild life. God didn't have to go looking for me because I've been right here. God, look at my star chart. But what we often forget is that there's another son in the story. Do you remember that? He was the older son. He's out in the field working hard for his dad when he hears music. He says, hey, what's going on? The servants, they tell him, they say, hey, your brother came home. They're throwing a big party. How did he respond? He was mad. He sat outside. He refused to go in. He's pouting. I never got a party. I'm the good son. I did all the good stuff. Look at my stars. And watch this. Luke 15, 28 says his father left the party and came out to get it. He invited him in. Just like the younger son, the father goes out to get him. I've heard it said that Romans 1 and 2 are like this story. Romans 1 describes the younger rebellious son, and Romans 2 describes the older religious son. Whether you've been rebellious or religious, followed the rules or broke all of them, we all stand condemned under God's judgment. If morality won't save us and religion won't save us, then what can save us? Who can possibly make it? That's the exact question that Paul wants us to feel in this passage. If we cannot save ourselves, then who can? Well, praise God, there is a third son to this story. He's the one telling it, and his name is Jesus. Jesus came to live a perfect life and to save the rebellious and the religious. He came to seek and to save the lost by giving his own life on the cross for you. And all he requires is that we come follow him, that we leave everything else behind, that we leave behind our sin and rebellion, and that we also leave behind our efforts of trying to save ourselves. Look, in order to be saved by Jesus, we don't need to be good. We don't need to be fixed up. We don't need to be religious. We don't need to have it all together. All we have to do is declare that we need him, that nothing else will work, that nothing else will do, that Jesus and Jesus alone can change my heart. That's it. 
So I want to invite you this morning, whether you're the first son who went out, lived a wild life, or whether you're the second, and you've thought of yourself as good and holy and religious, we all need the same invitation today. Come home. Come home. Come home to the Father. The party's ready. The way's open. And it comes through Jesus. Will you trust him today? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.